want you to see from this passage of Scripture is the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ calls men into his service. We've worked through this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 1, and we've seen a number of things already, haven't we? Number one, we've seen that great introduction, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you remember that when we looked at that passage of Scripture, we said that this entire first chapter and all of its different movements, and there are probably about six or seven different little scenes that we have in this first chapter. Every one of these scenes, every one of these movements is all designed to bring before our attention Jesus as the Son of God. And so he's declared to be the Son of God by way of Mark in his introduction. Then we have John the Baptist uh, preaching, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we had that very quick succession of events, you remember. The, the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he was anointed by the Spirit of God. We had then the Father's announcement that he was truly his beloved Son. Then we had that, and you've probably never heard this word used in this connection before, but then we had that antagonism of Satan when he tempted him in the wilderness. So we had the anointing, we had the annunciation, we had the antagonism. Then we saw last week, you remember, the authority of the Son of God to preach the kingdom of God. The time is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And last week, you remember some of the emphasis that we gave to the idea of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's sovereign rule over all of his creation. And the kingdom of God is presented to us in the scripture at a number of different levels. At one level, it's presented in his overall sovereign rule over all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without our Heavenly Father knowing. Again, nothing can come to pass except that which God ordains. There is an awesome majesty to the sovereignty of God. But there's another aspect that we see the kingdom of God manifested or the kingdom of God spoken of in the scripture. And that's where, and this is very important, that's where the kingdom of God becomes personal by way of the rule and reign of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of the individual. And that's what happens at salvation. Jesus introduced us to us, uh, introduced us to us uh, last week, uh, didn't he? When he says, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How does one come into this kingdom? And you remember what we said last, last week. The entrance into the kingdom by way of the Lord Jesus Christ comes through the hearts of men. And so men and women, boys and girls, repenting of sin, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ are introduced to the kingdom of God. Other aspects of the kingdom of God, there's, a, there's still a yet future aspect of the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ shall return in glory. Didn't we sing that, uh, didn't we sing that just a few moments ago? When he shall come in trump and sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. Again, and just uh, the glorious thought when we think about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all these things, as I said before, these are all moving us in this direction so that on the pages of the Gospel of Mark in this first chapter, we will have clearly set before us Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Well, what I want you to see here this morning is this, is that Jesus Christ as the Son of God not only calls sinners into his kingdom, he calls sinners to be disciples in order that they might serve him in his kingdom. And that brings me to what I would call the doctrine of the proposition of our sermon here this morning. And that proposition is essentially this. Uh, those whom Christ calls into his kingdom, he also calls into his service. Stop and think of that with me for a moment. Those who Christ calls into his kingdom, he also calls into his service. 
As I said before, it's a wonderful thought to know that one day when my life is over, or one day when your life is over, for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, their, their last day, their dying day can be their best day. Their last day, their dying day, will be that day in which they are introduced into the very presence of God the Father in a very real way. And we will be able to say in our dying day, Oh, death, where is thy sting? We'll be able to, in uh, those few days before death, look into the grave and say, Oh, grave, where is thy victory? You see, again, that dying day is, 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 is in one sense, it's an introduction into the very throne, into the very presence of God in a way that we've not experienced up to, this, up to that point. But God has not saved you just in order to give you that blessed, uh, that blessed uh, sensation on that, in that day. God has saved you and brought you into his kingdom in order that you might serve him. This is what we see. Come after me and I will make you to be fishers of men. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ in this opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, setting before us very clearly his desire that you and I be these fishers of men. So what I want to do today is I want to handle this passage of Scripture again in something of a, a very simple outline. Uh, number one, we'll take a look at the fact that Jesus Christ uh, calls his disciples to be fishers of men. Number two, that Jesus Christ makes his disciples to be fishers of men. And then thirdly, what I want to show to you is who is it that he calls to be fishers of men? Who is it that he calls? Just to give you something of a preview here. Uh, again, many of you know that Jesus Christ doesn't necessarily call uh, the, the influential and the highly significant in the world. Jesus Christ is very content to work just with those who the world may think nothing of. But Christ thinks much of those that he calls into his kingdom. So again, we'll take a look at all this here today. So the first thing I want you to consider with me then is the fact that Christ calls his disciples to be fishers of men. And stop and think of what this means to be a fisher of men. Even before I begin to open that up for you, I want you to consider with me the following. Christ calls his church to be fishers of men. He doesn't call his church to be, to be fishers of, of status. He doesn't call his church to be fishers of influence. He doesn't call his church to be fishers of, of money. He calls his church to be fishers of men. This great thought that God has intended for the church, again, the salvation of souls. And so he calls, as I said before, disciples, he calls his church to be fishers of men. Can I ask you the question here this morning? Can I do some fishing here today? Can I ask you the question, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you heard the call of the gospel? Have you heard the voice of the one who is the son of God who says, repent and believe the gospel? Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. You see, there is a sense in which when we see on the pages of scripture that Christ himself presses upon his hearers a sense of urgency. The time is fulfilled. Now is the accepted time. Repent and believe the gospel. So you see, this is what the church is to do. This is what we as the disciples of Christ are to do. We are to spread the gospel net. We are to seek the well-being of the souls of those who we come in contact with. And so again, this idea that we are to be the fishers of men. As I said before, we're not to fish for wealth. We're not to fish for fame. We're not to fish for status. We're not to fish for influence. We are to fish for souls. Well, how do we fish for men then? 
I guess this becomes a very important thing. I think most of us know that we fish for the souls of men by way of the gospel. But I want to ask you to just think along with me uh, along some, some points here. You know, when we look in the scripture, interestingly enough, we might not, we may not, not necessarily be aware of this. But when we look in the scripture, we find that there are three types of nets that were used in the scripture. Uh, and again, we all know what a net is. A, a net is a, just a, something that's made of a, of a mesh, a cross mesh of, of whatever it may be. It could be a heavy fabric. Sometimes it could be made of cables. If, uh, again, if you see any of these fishing ports, you see these big nets that, these, that the boats use. But we all know what a net is. It's very easy to understand what it is. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but in the scripture, we see three different types of nets used. Now, the first type of net that was used uh, was, a, was a very large drag net, and, and that would either be uh, placed between two boats, and they would just sail along, and they would just catch as much as they could, and, and then pull them up, and that was, again, the drag net. The, uh, there was a time in the gospel when the, when the preaching of the gospel was compared to a drag net. Uh, the idea that the gospel is just preached far and wide, and just drawing, again, whoever and whom, uh, whoever uh, to come into the kingdom. There's another type of uh, net that's used in the scripture, and that's the type of a net that's called a drop net. And that net is, the, is a net that's just dropped over the side of a boat. It sinks to the bottom, and then the fishermen, they, they just pull it up, and whatever is caught is what's in the net. Well, the third type of net is the type of net that we see being used here in verse, uh, in verse uh, 16. Look here in verse 16. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Well, this third type of net, is a, it was a net that was probably about maybe 10 or 15 feet in diameter. And we've all seen pictures of this where the fisherman would just throw it over his shoulder. And because of the weights on it, it would just circle out and land on the water, sink to the bottom. And sometimes they would go in the water and just gather it up and take it out. And there you would have the fish. Well, this is the, this is the type of net uh, that was being used by, by, uh, by Andrew and Peter. But I want to ask you to consider with me just the concept of the net once again. And when we think of these nets, we have, the, again, the, the drag net, the drop net, the, the small net here. But have you ever thought of what the gospel net is made up of? The gospel net. You know, again, as I said before, we have these cross patterns and, and it's designed to catch things. Well, stop and think of what the gospel net is made up of. And as I said, there are things that run one way and things that run the other way. And when we talk about a gospel net, the first thing you have to understand about a gospel net is this. The net of the gospel always includes the idea of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's the first interweaving point. There is no real gospel net apart from that emphasis. That the God with whom you have to deal is a holy God who will not countenance sin. A God who is so offended at sin that he gave his only begotten son in order that sin might be atoned. So a holy God and sinful humanity. That's the first cross-webbing cross of the net. The second cross-webbing that we might say of the, of the gospel net is this. It's what I would call this, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Over and over again in the scripture, we have this great emphasis on God as sovereign over all. But we also have set before us over and over again the responsibility of man to respond to the call of God in the gospel. You see, you and I stand before God as moral agents that must give an account. 
You and I stand before God. And did you hear in Isaiah 45, verse 22? Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye safe, for I am God and there is none else. God is appealing to the sinner. The God who has every right to demand and command repentance. And he does in some places. You see, the sovereignty of God. In other places, he appeals to sinners. You see, again, the, the, the cross-webbing of the, of, the, of the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility of man. There's a third, if I can say it this way, a third cross-webbing that we see. And that's the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners with the fact that I and the sinner who is in need of salvation. You see, when you cast the gospel net, all of these things must be in place. You and I are not preaching the gospel properly if we're not emphasizing the holiness of God. You and I are not preaching the gospel properly if we are not emphasizing the sinfulness of man. You and I are not preaching the gospel properly if we are not mentioning the sovereignty of God. You and I are not preaching the gospel if we're not mentioning the responsibility of man. You and I are not preaching the gospel if we are not preaching Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. And you and I are not preaching the gospel if the person we are speaking to doesn't understand that he is the primary sinner in whom God intends to save in that moment and now let me say this don't cut a hole in your net what are you talking about pastor don't cut a hole in your net what do you mean don't leave off the holiness of God and don't leave off the sinfulness of man you're cutting a hole in your net don't leave off the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the sovereignty of God or the responsibility or the responsibility of man. you're cutting a hole in the net don't leave off certainly not the fact that Jesus is the only savior and that the sinner in front of you is the sinner whom he intends to save. You see, you're cutting a hole in your net. And so you and I, who are called into the kingdom of God to be fishers of men, we have this net that we must use. And let's cast it. Let's cast it far. Let's cast it wide. And so you see, this is what I would call to you, what I would say to you, is the gospel net. So maybe we can say there are four types of nets in the scripture. Uh, there's the drag net. There's the, you know, and I think you get what I'm trying to say. So again, so that's the first thing I want you to see is that Christ calls his disciples to be fishers of men. Again, verse uh, 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee. And again, he said to them, come after me and I will make you to be fishers of men. But this is the next thing I want you to see. Christ not only calls uh, sinners into his kingdom to be fishers of men. The second thing I want you to see is that Christ makes his disciples fishers of men. Did you see this? I think this is significant. Because what we're seeing here is the reality, the, the, the kind of fundamental fact that unless Christ make his disciples fishers of men, we're not going to be able to be much good in the kingdom of God. But Christ is making and forming his disciples in the fishers of men. I want you to be encouraged by this. I want you to be encouraged by this for a number of reasons. You know, stop and think, as I said before, you remember I've kind of mentioned or alluded to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 26, that, that look among you, brethren, there are not many mighty, not many wise uh, after the flesh. Again, God is, God, is primary, God is saving some significant and influential people, but, but he has chosen primarily to work among, you know, those of us who the world looks at and doesn't give a second look to. And I think sometimes because of that, we're prone to look at ourselves and say, well, what can I do? You see, I can't do anything. Did I tell you the last thing I tried to do and how that, and how that ended up? And you, and you think that, that I'm going to be able to do something for God? Understand this. Christ will make you to be a fisher of men. You see, that's what the passage is saying. 
John chapter 15, verse 16. You haven't chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. Oh, what God makes. Oh, what Christ is able to do. And so I want you to see in this passage of Scripture that here is the Lord Jesus Christ not only calling, again, individuals into his kingdom, he is calling them into his service. And what you may think you lack, and we know we do lack, we know that when it comes down to, apart from the grace of God, what are we going to be able to do? Christ will make you to be a fisher of men, you see. He will equip you for his service. I think we see this in a, in a number of ways. Let me just say, say it this way, even before I get to my specific point. Let me say it this way. I want you to understand that, th- that it's in the very nature of the gospel. The very nature of the gospel is that it is fundamentally and essentially a supernatural reality and experience brought upon the soul. You see, this is, this is why we say that the true Christian gospel is not merely religious sentiment worked out in life. That the gospel is fundamentally a supernatural work of the grace of God upon the soul, whereby the individual who by nature is not only, is, is not only uh, 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 damned to hell, we might say, but it is, there's a sense in which that individual sinner doesn't, doesn't see or could care less about being on the way to hell. But something happens. There's a real change in the soul. This is how, this is one of the marks of how you know that you are a child of God. Your sin is not that which you just think lightly of anymore. You're offended by it. You're embarrassed by it. Not by the public exposure of it, but by the personal practice of it. You'd rather it not be. I'm telling you, you didn't work that up religiously in yourself. That was a work of the Spirit of God upon your soul. The gospel is a supernatural reality that comes upon the soul. However, what's interesting about the gospel is this. While the gospel is a supernatural reality, the gospel is always used, or the gospel is always proclaimed. God always uses in the gospel human means. He uses human means to accomplish supernatural ends. Where do we see this? Well, just stop and think of a passage like uh, Acts chapter 26, verses 14 through 18. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is giving his testimony. He's giving an account of his conversion experience. And he goes on to speak about the fact how he had persecuted the church and how Jesus Christ appeared to him and how Jesus Christ called him and how Jesus Christ commissioned him. And when the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned the Apostle Paul, it's wonderful to see what happens because the Lord Jesus Christ commissions the Apostle Paul to do a supernatural work. A work that when we break it down into its various parts, we would say, well, how can a human man, how can a, how can a human do that? That is specifically a work of God. Listen to what the passage of Scripture says. Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. And again, this is uh, the Lord Jesus speaking to Paul. But, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared to thee for this purpose, to make thee. Well, what did... What, what, was the, what did we say the Lord Jesus Christ does when he calls uh, the men and women into his kingdom? He calls them for service. There he was in, in Mark chapter 1. I will make you to be fishers of men. Look what he says here to Paul in Acts chapter 26. I will make thee a minister and a witness of both of these things which thou hast seen and the things which I, uh, which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee. Now notice this. This is Paul's commission. To open the eye, to open their eyes, 
and from the and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto, unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith which is in me. Stop and think here. How can a mere man spiritually open the eyes of another man? Can't do it. How can a mere man turn another man from the power of Satan to the power of God? He can't do it. These are supernatural works that the Spirit of God does in the soul. But how does it take place? How is it accomplished? Through the instrumentality of men. That's why Jesus Christ says to his disciples, I will make you to be fishers of men. The supernatural work of the gospel carried out by the very natural work of men and women, boys and girls, who are now made fishers of men. You see, aren't you glad that this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is able to do? My, my Christian friends, you know, I, I, I think that too often times our, our Christian experience is so, is so flat, uh, is, so, is so dull because we're not fishing, because we're not engaged in the work that Christ call, has called us to. Because for whatever reason, whether it's misunderstanding, whether it's willful sin, whatever it may be, we've chosen just not to do the work that Christ has called us to do. This is never a good place to be. And if that's the case for, for an extended period of time in our lives, we, we need to be asking ourselves the question, have I truly been called into this kingdom? Because Christ says when he calls me into this kingdom, he will make me to be a fisher of men. Amen. He will give me a work to do. And so, my brothers and sisters, let us, let, us, let, let us cast out into the deep and let us do this work that God has called us to do. You see, as I said before in Acts chapter 26, these are supernatural effects that cannot be accomplished by human power, but they are accomplished through human instrumentality. Let me ask you, do you see the difference between the two? The work of the gospel cannot be accomplished through human power, but it is accomplished through human instrumentality. Friends, listen to me. Your service for Christ is not done until Christ takes you out of this world. If you're here, and I don't mean in this church, if you're still on this earth and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has work for you to do. Some of you still may be in this whole process of figuring out what that is. Others of you may know what that is and, and may know that you've not been doing it. I want to encourage you. Did you hear what I says? And what I said, I don't want to berate you. I want to encourage you. Do the work that Christ has called you to do. Know what it is to, 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 to have that sense that this is what you were not only born for, but this is what you were saved for. This is why God saved you, to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, why is this work so important? <clears throat> why is this work so important? Because to be a fisher of men, you know this, is to be a seeker of souls. A soul. Oh, over and over again in the scripture, that word soul. Over and over again in the scripture, that word soul is used to, to convey the, the significance, the importance, and the value of an individual life and of an, of an individual person. God sees souls. And this idea of the soul is very, very important. Psalm 49 says this, their soul is precious. Psalm 49 verse 8, the redemption of their soul is precious. Do you understand the preciousness of your soul? Do you understand the price that was paid for your soul? Do you understand why your soul could not be redeemed by silver or gold, but it had to be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? 
because the soul was valuable, the soul was precious. Other passages of scripture, again, uh, um, uh, uh, God says in Ezekiel 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. You see, again, your soul in the hand of God. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 30, speaks about the fact that the man who wins souls is wise. The so- he that winneth souls is wise. Why? Because, again, the soul is that which is eternal. So many things of this world pass away, but the soul will remain. When Peter talks about salvation, he, he puts it in the, in the context of souls. He says, he says, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. And of course, that most famous passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Friends, how is it with your soul this morning? How is it with your soul this morning? Can I say to you that there is a sense in which I'm seeking to be this morning, not only the not only the shepherd of your soul as your pastor, but I'm also seeking to be, again, the fisher of your soul. Oh, friend, have you been caught up in that gospel net? You know the net, the net of God's holiness and your sinfulness. Have you dealt with God along those lines? The net of God's, the gospel net of, of God's sovereignty and of, and of your responsibility. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, you know, you never really called me. I've read of philosophers who said, well, I would have believed in God if he would have made himself more clearly known. Are you serious? Where did this all come from? You think this all came from nothing? You see, responsibility, moral agents we are. And so again, I cast a net and I ask, how is it with your soul? That soul that Christ bled for. That soul that's precious. That soul that Christ woos to himself. That soul that Christ calls into his service. Well, I want you to see again that the Lord Jesus Christ made, made fishers of men out of Simon and Andrew and James and, John, and James and John. But I want you to also see that he's still making fishers of men out of his disciples. He really is. This idea of fishing for souls hasn't stopped. And, and again, we see this. And if we ask ourselves the question, well, how does God make us fishers of men? I would, suggest, I would suggest to you that he does it in the way that he's always done it. And that's number one, by calling men, women, boys and girls into his kingdom. Look at verses 15 and 16. I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is how he, he makes individuals fishers of men. He calls them into his kingdom. But the second thing that he does, and we saw this in the passage, he calls each and every one of us away from our nets. I want to be careful here. You know what's interesting about Mark chapter 1? Is that Mark chapter 1 is very compacted. Mark chapter 1 is, like I said before, there's a lot of things going on. Mark chapter 1 really has one primary focus to set forth Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, however, begins really after about Jesus has been actively engaged in ministry for for almost a year. So when we get to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, And the call of Andrew and Peter, James and John, you need to understand that Andrew and Peter, James and John, they already knew Jesus of Nazareth. They already knew and understood that that their first rabbi, John the Baptist, did you realize that? They were first followers of John the Baptist before they were followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And it was from John the Baptist that they heard Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, isn't it interesting that in verse 14, last week we read this, now after that, John was cast in the prison. 
Now in verse 16 and 17, Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and he sees Andrew and Peter, James and John, not for the first time. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What am I trying to say? Well, number one, that Christ calls us from our nets. But please understand this. That doesn't mean that he calls us away from legitimate responsibilities. There was Peter and Andrew still engaged in their life's work. There were James and John still working with their father. And so when Christ calls you into his kingdom, he is not necessarily saying to you that all responsibilities and all issues of the past have to be cut off so long as they're legitimate. But what he is saying is this, is that every legitimate calling in life, and this is the key, is now subordinated under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And let me ask you a question. And I hate to say this because somebody just said amen. <laughs> but let me ask you a question. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That when Jesus Christ calls you into his kingdom, he is not necessarily saying to you, or me as a plumber, put down your wrenches. Or maybe you as an executive, set aside your books. Or maybe as a carpenter, put aside your hammer. No, what he's saying is this, subordinate all of that to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, will you do that? You see, this is what Christ calls us to. This is what it means to be a witness for Christ in this world. This is the way Christ makes men and women, boys and girls, fishers of men. And so again, the first thing again that Christ does in making, uh, making his disciples fishers of men is that he calls them into his kingdom. He calls them to set beside, uh, to, to leave aside uh, the, the, the nets. But what he really does is he calls us into discipleship. Now you know what's interesting about the concept of discipleship? Many things really. But you know what's interesting about the concept of discipleship when we see it in the book of Mark? And I was very surprised by this. Mark never uses the word disciple in the gospel. Strange, surprising. But he uses the concept of discipleship. When Jesus says, come and follow me, that's what a disciple is. And so there's a sense in which we would be misunderstanding uh, the message of this section of scripture if we were not including in those words, come and follow me, what we know about discipleship. And so let's say a few things about discipleship. Number one, as I said before, Christ is still calling men into discipleship, men and women, boys and girls into discipleship. Salvation includes the whole process or the whole idea of discipleship. But what is discipleship? Well, let me say this first, that a disciple is one who is a learner, uh, one who follows the teaching and the lifestyle of another. This is, this is basic uh, information by way of your, you know, your, your understanding of the Bible. Uh, you're probably not surprised to hear me define disciple in that way. A disciple is one who learns from another. And in biblical times, a disciple is one who really actually literally followed another, would have been even living with and would have been in very close proximity all the time. The disciple would have been observing the life of the rabbi or the master in order to pick up as much information to see how the rabbi conducted himself, to see what he did. There was a time, I was, as I was preparing for the sermon, there was a time when, um, when an old, an old uh, Puritan um, uh, preacher on this text of scripture was saying that there was a time when young men would actually spend time in the presence of their minister in order to be 
with him at all times, to see him when he was waking up in prayer, to see him when he was studying the scripture alone in his study, to see him as he was interacting in his family, to see him as he was out and about in the life of the, in the life of society and among the congregation. And that same idea of discipleship training. But again, a disciple is a learner, one who follows the teaching and lifestyle of another. Now notice this, that a disciple, and this is important, a disciple purposely patterns his life after his teacher. A disciple purposely patterns his life after his teacher. He willingly does the will of the teacher. He intentionally takes on the character character traits of the teacher. He leaves behind the things that the teacher tells him to leave behind, and he takes up those things which which the teacher tells him to take up. When we bring all this to bear as to what it means to be a disciple of Christ, we come away with the following picture. That a disciple of Christ is one who believes his doctrine, who rests upon his sacrifice, who takes up everything by way of what Christ is in the world, and who imitates his example as much as is is possible. We can't can't die for another man, man in the way that Christ did. We can lay down our lives in service, and if need be, we can give our lives for our friends, but not in an atoning type of a way. But again, this is what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ sets this before us, again, I want you to see that he is one who follows the lead and follows the example of his teacher. So when it comes back, when we come back to the idea of the gospel net, what does the disciple do? Therefore, the disciple takes up the gospel net and casts it into the sea of fallen humanity. Now, what's interesting here is this is the picture of fishing as we find it in this pa- and not only in this passage of scripture but as we find it in the throughout the bible most of the time we don't hear this it's kind of interesting that the image of fishing really it concerns the, the the idea of judgment when we read in the old testament any any occurrences to fishing it's usually gathering out individuals to be judged And so when we think of this casting of the gospel net, when we think of what the sea represents in Scripture, you have to understand that you and I cast the gospel net into a sea of humanity that is existing under the judgment of God. And unless they be caught up in that gospel net, they too will face the wrath of a holy and almighty God. And so, my friends, I I ask you the question, are you casting the gospel net into the sea of fallen humanity? You see, if you and I do not cast out the gospel net, who will? If the church doesn't do it, who will? Many will try to make this life better in in this world, but what about souls? What about the soul? It's very interesting, you know, where where we're at in Western society. Very, very, very rarely do you have any kind of a reference to the soul as that which is eternal. If there is any reference to the soul, it's just to the immaterial part of man, the psychology of the man, not not to the soul of the man. You see, the soul, however, is precious. And again, Christ gave his life in order that souls might be saved. Well, so we see that Christ calls his disciples to be fishers of men. He makes them uh, to be fishers of men. And the last thing I want you to see here now is to consider with me those who he calls to be fishers of men. Who does Christ actually call to be fishers of men? 
Well, again, we see this in the text. Notice the text that we have here, and I think there's a number of interesting things that we see. Notice what we have again, verses 16 and following. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, I just want to stop there. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. Stop and think of what this means. Again, to us, it might not really register, but again, as I said before, he's already into his, our Lord Jesus Christ is already into his public ministry for about a year now. In that year, he has spent the majority of the time in Jerusalem and Judea. In other words, he spent his time in his first year of ministry in that place where the religious elite and where the socially significant were. Now he's in Galilee and he's choosing his first disciples. He's choosing his workers for his kingdom, not among the religious elite, not among the influential of society. You remember when Nathaniel sees, yeah, is, is, uh, is brought to the, uh, Jesus is brought to the attention of Nathaniel. You remember what Nathaniel says? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, guess where Nazareth was? Nazareth was in Galilee. It was looked down upon. And what I want you to see and understand, I want you to grasp this, that Christ did not seek fishers of men among the elite. He sought for fishers of men among the these simple fishermen. He sought for fishers of men among those who were not on the inside of the spheres of influence of his day. He sought for fishers of men among those who were very much like you and me. Please understand that. Please grasp that. Understand that what you have in this passage of Scripture is a description of those who Jesus is still calling to be fishers of men. He calls those, again, who are not, again, influential in the, in the eyes of the world. He's in Galilee and not Jerusalem here. And so I want you to see, too, that there is this sense in which we should never be afraid or never be ashamed, I might say, about the fact that Jesus is calling us from where we are. You never have to look at yourself and say, well, I'm only this and I'm only that. Listen, this is, this is, this is the one, these are the ones, you're the ones whom Jesus is calling into this service. And so again, he calls these ones to be fishers of men. Well, I want to do something here with this, uh, with this idea of those who he calls. I want to take a look at, uh, at the men here, Simon and Andrew, brothers, you know, James and John, brothers, you know, Philip and Nathaniel, if my memory serves me right, brothers, you know, God calls brothers. Got two brothers here this morning. Don't be surprised if God calls both of you into his kingdom and into his service. Again, it's a wonderful thing to think about. But what I want you to consider with me is, are these men. And what I want to do here, just very briefly, is I want to look at them and I want to make sure that we don't make too much of them, but I don't want, I don't want to make too little of them either. What do I mean? Well, here's Andrew and Peter. Peter. These men, James and John, these men whom Christ called to himself, these men upon whom the, the church is, again, through whom the church has been built, these men were very, very significant men in history. And sometimes there can be a failure to, and by way of looking at them and just ascribing too much to them. We don't want to do that. But I don't want to make too little of these men either. Why do I say that? Because when we look at these men, I think there are some characteristics that I want you to be aware of. Number one, while these men were not perfect men, they were, they were pious men. They were pious men. Why do I say that? Well, as I said before, they were followers. They were disciples of John the Baptist. They were looking for the Messiah to come. They had messianic hopes. They had an awareness of the scripture. They were men of piety. 
And again, I think there's something to be said in that. I think there's something appealing to that. Yes, not much in the eyes of the world, but they were, they were pious men. But the other thing that we see here is that they were, they were industrious men. There was, there, were Peter and, uh, there was Peter and Andrew casting the net. There was James and John mending the net. And what I want you to see is that these men whom Christ has called into his kingdom to be fishers of men, can I say it, are very much like you and me. And brothers and sisters, if Christ can build this church for 2,000 years with men like that, what can he do with people like us? Let us pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.